Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. Again, that's 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the clouds and in the, and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Emily. Good morning, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm Sully. I'm one of the pastors. I'm going to move this mic over a little bit. Um, what a full morning we've already had today. Uh, man, Leva family, we love you guys. We're so thankful for the ministry that you've had among us. I hope uh, you'll stick around after the service today for the reception to be able to uh, express your gratitude and thankfulness for them. Uh, Kristen, we're so thankful that you're here with us uh, this morning. Um, thanks for sharing about your fiance. We will be praying for him today. Again, I encourage you to go and talk to Kristen after the service. She has a table you can pick up a card that you can put on your, your refrigerator, be thinking of her and praying for her. I know she's planning to join us on Wednesday for, all, uh, I believe, our all-church picnic. Uh, so if you're looking to, to get some more time with her, you can plan on joining us on Wednesday as well. 
Well, before I jump into the passage today, I just want to make a quick note about our preaching schedule. Uh, in the summers, it's our habit to give uh, Pastor John, our senior pastor, a bit of a break from the pulpit for a few weeks uh, for some reading, some writing, some preparation for the fall, hopefully a little bit of rest in there as well. Um, so uh, if you weren't able to join us last week, we had Pastor uh, Ronald Kogo with us, a partner from Nakuru, Kenya, preached on Psalm 90, oh, fantastic sermon, uh, really edifying. So if you have time and you missed it, go back to our YouTube page and you can, can go and look at it there. But today we're back in the letter of 1 Corinthians, and we have been calling this sermon series Church on Fire. And I'll be honest with you, I love fire. Man, I, I love, yesterday I was grilling and lighting up the coals, putting lighter fluid on there, lighting a match, oh, man, nothing better than that. Having a bonfire, making it as big as possible. I love that. I love playing with matches whenever I'm, when I have the chance. I mean, I, I'm even been known to at times when uh, Laura, my wife, isn't looking to light a matches and let my son come and blow them out and play with me. Some might say I'm a bit reckless when it comes to, to playing with fire. It was only a few generations ago you would not have found a Chicagoan who was reckless with fire. After the Chicago fire, the great Chicago fire that, you know, wiped out a ton of the city, I think 300 or so people lost their lives. For generations after that event, people had a pretty healthy fear of fire. Well, today, as we're going back to this letter of 1 Corinthians, I want to remind you that this is a letter written from a guy named Paul to a young church in Corinth. And in writing this letter, he's teaching them not just how to put out fires as they come, but to show them how foolish it is even to play with matches. He wants them to avoid some of the same problems that previous generations had, same mistakes that they made. He doesn't want to just teach them to call 911 when the house is on fire. He wants them to know how to avoid it altogether. So today in our passage, Paul really is giving a warning. It's a warning passage to avoid this thing called idolatry. Idolatry, you may not be familiar with that word, but a simple definition of idolatry is the idea that it's worshiping anything other than God trying to find a thing, uh, really going to anything else other than God for the things that only God can provide. So whether that be our identity, security, peace, love, satisfaction, going to anything other than God for those things, well, that, that's idolatry. I know that to our modern ears, when we hear the word idolatry, probably an ancient people and an ancient problem come to mind, something that seems really a long time ago. We don't have the issue of idolatry anymore, am I right? We, we, don't, we don't make idols out of carved images or out of rock and, and wood. That's something that happened a long time ago. Uh, when we think of modern-day problems, we think of other words like inflation or infectious disease. I mean, those are problems, am I right? Those are, those are issues that face us every day. Idolatry doesn't wake us up at night. It doesn't, keep us, uh, it doesn't wake us up with an anxious, you know, twisted stomach. It, it's not an issue or a problem that any political party is trying to come up with a solution to. But what I want to just argue for today or share with you today is that idolatry is as destructive as ever. It's an issue that should cause us to drop to our knees a little bit more often in prayer. It's a more pressing issue than inflation. It's a more dangerous than any infectious disease out there today. So if you're looking for a one-sentence summary of today's sermon, it's this. It's that idolatry is as destructive as ever, but I believe it's more defeatable than ever before. I want to show that to you in the passage today, but before I do, I want to pause for a few moments and ask the Lord for his help. I want to acknowledge that we've come here to hear from him, 
So if you would, join me in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we pause this morning and recognize that we are in your presence. That you are the one who has gathered us and you are the one who has spoken to us. You will be the one who sends us out again. And so, Father, we come before you as your people today to hear from you, to pray, Lord, that you'd give us the strength to hear and to obey your word again. Father, I pray, particularly today, that you would expose any idols in our lives that need to be destroyed. Father, I confess the idolatry of my own heart, and I ask that as one fighting idolatry, I might call others to to this great fight as well. So meet us with your grace and your strength today, I pray. It's in the Lord's name we pray. Amen. Well, I said it's been two weeks or so since we have been in this book, uh, this letter to the Corinthian church. So I encourage you, if you have a Bible near you, to, to open it up. We've got Bibles on the sides of the room, in the back of the room. Um, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please take one of those. That's a, a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have it. But let me situate us again, or try to remind you what's going, been going on in this letter. At the end of chapter 9, that we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul finished with this strong exhortation uh, to the Corinthian church to run the race set before them. To, to be like an athlete who trains, who competes to win the prize. He wants them to, to practice a little bit of self-discipline uh, in order to finish the race that's been set before them. And so as we turn the corner to chapter 10, what we come across is Paul giving a warning about something that is so dangerous that it could derail them, that could cause them to not finish the race set before them. And it's the issue of idolatry. The way that Paul goes about trying to make this point is is having uh, the church in Corinth think back a little ways, think back a few generations to show them just how dangerous and destructive idolatry can be. So in order to walk through our passage today, I want to frame everything with this question. Why should we pay attention or why should we take seriously this ancient people and their ancient problem? I want to give you just four simple reasons why we ought to take seriously the problem of idolatry. Four simple reasons why we ought to take seriously the problem of idolatry. I want to start with verses 1 through 5. This last week, as uh, we had our monthly elders meeting, the elders gather once a month to work through a number of things, and I enjoy our elders meetings, but I'm often very aware that I'm the youngest in the room often by a couple of years. And sitting around the room, you know, everyone knows that the youngest person in the room knows the most, right? I mean, that's just obvious. No, that's not true in the slightest bit. But I think that's kind of sometimes an under, uh, kind of an unstated belief that some of us may think, uh, that, that, that the younger generation, well, we, we're more connected. We have more information, access to information than ever before. Uh, we can begin to, to think that older generations have nothing to teach us. Well, their wisdom is rooted in lived experiences. They've, they've had a few more rides around the, uh, the sun than us and have some things to teach us. So as we begin our passage, or our passage today in verses 1 through 5, Paul is trying to make this argument that we have, we who are younger than this generation that he's going to talk about today, has, we have something to learn from them. So take a look at verses 1 through 5 with me. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual fruit and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Some of what Paul says here might seem a little strange, or we may not really know what he's talking about at first, so let me try to explain it. 
He's trying to conjure up in our minds this old generation of God's people. He talks about them as fathers, a simple way of referring to a previous generation. And in particular, as I've said, he's trying to recall this generation, uh, in particular the generation that was redeemed from Israel, or redeemed from Egypt, slavery, and brought into freedom. He's trying to recall for us a very particular generation of God's people who experienced the great redeeming and saving power of God. Sometimes we can think that we don't share anything in common uh, with past generations, particularly the ancient generations like Israel. But Paul wants to actually draw some connections for us, some similarities for us between this, these, this people, Israel, and us, well, particularly the Corinthian church, and then for us today. He mentions in these couple of verses, the verses 1 through 4, that this generation of God's people, well, they, they experienced some form of baptism. They walked through the waters as the waters parted. It was a kind of a form of baptism. They, too, ate and drank of spiritual food. They ate the manna that was provided for them in the wilderness and drank water from a rock. And in a way, they, too, kind of experienced some form of communion. In a way, he's trying to help us to see that just as we have experienced some incredible ways that God has worked, when we celebrate baptism, when we celebrate communion together, that same power at work there, they experienced, too many, many generations ago. Here in these couple of verses, what he's trying to do, what Paul is trying to do, is get the Corinthians to start thinking about the fact that just because they get to practice baptism and and share communion together doesn't necessarily make them any better than this previous generation. For they too were witnesses to God's mighty hand at work. They too saw God work in incredible ways. And so when we come to verse 5, the passage makes this interesting turn. And says, nevertheless, even though this generation saw God do incredible things, God was not pleased with them, and they were scattered in the wilderness. Even though they, they tasted of the provision of God, uh, they still doubted. They, this is the generation that made a golden calf and worshipped it instead of worshipping God. This is the generation that grumbled and thought that Moses led them into the wilderness to die. This is the generation that so quickly forgot how powerful God was. Paul wants us to look back at this group of Israelites as kind of a bit of a mirror to be able to see some of our own tendencies in them, to see some continuity between our generation and their generation. The fact is that the problem of idolatry that plagued this old ancient people is a problem that plagues us today. That even if you've experienced incredible things, incredible ways that God has worked in your life, well, so too did this other generation, but yet they fell away. There are moments when I think that my faith would be so much stronger had I been there, had I walked on the muddy ground as the waters parted. My faith would be so much stronger if I had tasted the water that gushed from the rock or had tasted the manna that God miraculously provided. I even think sometimes, man, my faith would be so much stronger if I was there when I saw Christ crucified and then saw the empty grave. Then I would have no doubt and I wouldn't have any issues. Well, Paul's argument here today is that no one is immune to the threat of idolatry. That even those who witnessed God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, they too fell away. And so too shall we be aware that this problem of idolatry, well, it's a problem that hasn't gone away with time. Just because you and I live in the day of modern medicine, just because you and I live in the day of the internet, doesn't mean this problem of idolatry has gone away. Rather, it's still present and pervasive as ever before. It's possible that those Advancements in medicine and technology only make the problems of idolatry even worse. 
So really my first reason why you ought to take idolatry seriously today is that it's a problem that we all share even with our ancient ancestors. As I said, it's present here now with us and it's pervasive. To just show you how pervasive of a problem this is for us, I want to reference a, a, a definition of idolatry that Tim Keller, another pastor, gives. He says that idolatry or an idol is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living at all. So sure, we don't have carved images out of wood and stone, but we're pretty good at making an idol out of our careers or out of a romantic relationship, out of children, out of money, out of a home. There's so many different things that we have have a tendency to make so central to our life that if we were to lose it, it would feel as if our life wasn't worth living at all. It's a problem that plagues our own hearts, and it's a tendency for us to make other things other than God central, too central. It's a condition that we share with our ancestors, and it's a problem that's going to be judged. As we move in our passage, there's kind of an intensification of this problem. As we move to the next portion, the next six verses in our passage, what we see here is, is that Paul is trying to draw these parallels in the first couple of verses, uh, verses 1 through 5, but then as we move to the next six verses, he actually tells us more about Israel so that we actually don't share in the same judgment that they shared in. So look back at verses 6 through 11 with me, and as I read these verses, try to notice, try to pick up on some of the patterns, some of the things that are repeated. Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, as, as were, and were destroyed by the serpent, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things were, uh, happened uh, to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So if you're uh, maybe someone who likes to take notes in your journal or in your Bible, you can notice here that verse 6 and verse 11 kind of repeat themselves, uh, kind of form a bit of a bookend, reminding us that these stories, these events that happened to Israel, were recorded in Scripture for our benefit, our, uh, our good, that we might learn from them. And in between these verses, 6 and 11, each of these verses kind of follows a bit of a pattern. It starts off with saying, don't be like the Israelites who blank, like idolatry, or tested Christ, or uh, grumbled, just as some of them did. It's repeated, and then it talks about them being judged. Just this pattern that repeats throughout these verses. Here in verses, uh, these verses 6 through 11, what is interesting is that there's a a bit of a change. If the first couple of verses focus on what God did for Israel... In verses 6 through 11, it focuses on how Israel responded to these mighty works of God. They responded with making idols and putting Christ to the test and and grumbling and giving into sexual immorality. What we notice in this pattern, though, that all of these sins, all of these ways of rejecting God were ultimately judged. The reference to the 23,000 who died in a single day in verse 8 and the deadly serpent in in verse 9 and the destroyer in verse 10, they're all alluding to very specific events in the life of Israel where their sin was judged, when their idolatry was brought before the Lord and revealed for what it was. And here's the thing for you and I today is that there is no reason for us to assume that God won't deal with our idolatry and rebellion in the same exact way. 
idolatry. It's a, it's a rejection of God's identity. Our idolatry says that we don't believe that God is who he says he is, that his promises can't be kept, that when we go to find security or peace or satisfaction in other things, what we are ultimately saying is that God is not good enough, that God isn't who he says he is. And you see, God is perfect and holy, and he does not allow his name to be maligned. He does not allow people to perpetuate a lie about himself, and he will judge idolatry. I was at the Art Institute on Friday, and you know, when you hang out at the Art Institute, you can begin to think that you know something about art, which I like to pretend like I do, but I don't. But I've come to enjoy or know that there's, there's something pretty interesting about standing before a portrait, a painting, and looking at it and really asking the question, what was the artist trying to say about the world? What is the artist trying to say about the human experience, about people? And when we look at that portrait, there's at times, opportunities to learn something about ourselves. Here, Paul is putting up a portrait of Israel for us, a little bit of a mirror to look into to say, there's some things about you that you need to learn, that you have this problem of idolatry, and if you don't deal with it, you're going to be judged. But spending some time around at the Art Institute, you also come to realize that there's some enjoyment in looking at a portrait and a painting, and you can begin to ask the question, what does this painting say about the artists themselves. How does this painting give us a glimpse into the inner life or the inner emotional life, the characteristics of the one who created it? Well, when we look at the portrait of Israel, we also get this little bit of a glimpse into seeing the author of the story of Israel. We get a, get a glimpse into the, the creator of this portrait, God himself, who is a God who works in miraculous ways to bring about redemption. We also get a glimpse of a God who judges sin. He is holy and righteous. He is determined to make himself known in the world. Isn't it interesting that Israel, who was chosen by God to make his character known, they were a chosen people. Their purpose was to help all the other nations to know who God was. And yet they rejected him. They failed at what they were called to do. And yet God's purposes were not thwarted. That even in the failure of Israel, God still makes himself known to the world as a a good God who rescues his people and who is holy and righteous and does not allow injustice to continue. God is not a God who should be ignored, neglected, or forgotten. He is a faithful and good God. History reveals to us that God has no rival. Paul doesn't want to put this portrait of Israel before us to discourage you. This picture of Israel is not to cause you to become depressed or frustrated, but rather I think ultimately to stir up within us this attitude of amazement at God, a determination within us to set our minds upon finishing the race that was set before us, to not allow idolatry to derail us. So as I've said so far, I'm trying to give you a couple of reasons why you ought to take idolatry seriously. The first one is because it's a problem that we all share. Two is that it's a problem that's going to be judged. But thirdly, I want to show you that it's a problem uh, that has a solution, that idolatry does not have to be inevitable. Here, as we move to verses 12 and 13, there's some exhortations and some encouragement. Look at these verses with me. It says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
Do you notice the beginning of verse 12, the, the word therefore? It's this beautiful word that connects the passage together a bit. It connects this imperative to uh, take heed lest you fall with what just previously took place, this reminiscing of the ancient people of Israel. He says, take seriously idolatry, lest you too should fall. But here in these verses, he gives us some encouragement. These simple words that God is going to be with you. He's going to help you. He'll provide a way for you to endure. He is faithful. He will do it. I want to speak this morning to those of you who are feeling maybe a little bit weary, maybe a little bit worn out and exhausted. Maybe you're trying to run the race that's been set before you, and it feels like every day you wake up and temptation is right at the front door every day. Maybe there's some this morning here that just the weight of temptation is just this like boulder that you're carrying on your shoulders, and you're not really sure how much longer you can, you can keep walking, you can keep going. I want verses 12 and 13 to be etched into your heart and into your mind this morning as, a, as encouragement to give you strength for the week ahead. I want to just give you three things to remember the next time that you feel temptation bearing down on you. From these couple of verses, we're told that the temptation we experience, it's common. He says that the, the text says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Meaning, your temptation is not so unbearable or so unique that there's nobody who could sympathize with you. There's something that's comforting to know that other people can come alongside of us. Don't try to take on temptation alone. Share that burden with another. Allow them to pray for you. Allow them to speak encouragement and truth to you. Allow them to walk alongside of you in the highs and the lows. Because the temptation you carry is it's not so unbearable, uh, so unique, that no one else could sympathize with you. Secondly, remember that God will not allow you to be experience temptation that is beyond your ability to handle. You know, what, what's really he's saying here is that as weak as you may feel, God won't let you be overcome. That they are, it's not as if your temptation is stronger than you. You actually might be stronger than you realize. Because the temptation you're facing, it may feel like, wow, I, there's no way I can stand up against this. There's something I know I'm, I shouldn't look at, or there's an, a way of responding to a circumstances that I tend to always want to respond in that same sinful way. It seems like those are just are going to be inevitable, but they don't have to be, because God is going to provide a way for you. Thirdly, just remember that God is faithful. This is just good news for us who, who struggle to fight temptation. Even when you have sinned and you fall short, you give in temptation, you have the choice to either wallow in your despair and to keep just focusing on it, or you have the opportunity to return back to the faithful God who will receive you, to welcome you back. I, I just want to remind you today that if you fail and you give in to temptation, we have a God whose grace and love is incredible. It can receive you back even when you have been unfaithful. When we recount stories of Israel, when we get to know our Bibles a little bit more, these are stories that remind us that God will welcome you back, that God is a God who is faithful to you, even when you're not faithful. One of my favorite places where this is so clear is when we read the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. When we read the Gospel of Matthew, you might begin to read it and see, hey, there's some similarities between the life of Jesus and the life of Israel. Both Jesus and Israel were called out of Egypt. Both of them experienced some form of baptism. Some, they both were taken into the wilderness. Both were tempted in the wilderness. And yet Matthew, the author of the gospel, though he's making these, these similarities, draws this great contrast between Israel and, and Jesus. 
He says that though they were both tempted in the wilderness, Israel failed, but Jesus succeeded. Jesus was faithful to the end. That his life, death, and resurrection meant that he was faithful all the way through. And it's because of his faithfulness that when you and I stumble, when we trip and we lose our balance, when we give in to temptation, we can have confidence that we can go back to God in repentance and know that his love will receive us. His grace will meet us. So Holy Trinity Church, when you find yourself struggling, I just want you to remember verses 12 through 13. Your, your temptation that you're experiencing, it's common to man. It's, it's not uh, something that no one else could sympathize with. It's, it's not a temptation that is stronger than you. And yet, in the moments where it becomes too difficult, remember the faithfulness of God. I hate heights, so this next illustration might not be true at all, but I've been told that for those who walk on tight ropes, you can lose your balance if you look down and you begin to, to wobble a bit. But what you're supposed to do is keep your eyes out on the horizon to keep your, your balance. And so when you begin to feel uh, like you're stumbling a bit, I just want you to encourage that to look up at the horizon of Christ and his faithfulness to bring you some steadiness, to bring you some fir- firm grounding to step on. Giving into temptation doesn't have to be inevitable. And when it comes, when it's difficult, remember that Christ is our way of escape. That Christ is the one whose faithfulness ensures for us that we will be received by the Lord. So, simple, simple reasons why we should take uh, this problem of idolatry seriously. First is that it's a problem we all share from the greatest to the least, uh, from the strongest to the weakest, from Israel to Corinth to us today. It's a problem that plagues us all. So we got to take it seriously. Secondly, we got to take it seriously because it's, a, it's an attack on the identity of God. It's going to be judged. Thirdly, what I want you to hear today, why you should take this problem of idolatry seriously is because our inclination towards idolatry doesn't have to define us. There's a way through the temptation. If there wasn't, if there wasn't any real way to actually fight temptation or to fight idolatry, then there would be no reason to take it seriously. But because Christ has made a way for us, There's reason to keep fighting another day. In our passage, we kind of crescendo. We are moving towards verse 14 the entire time. And here we finally reach verse 14 with this crescendoing kind of pinnacle to our passage. And at the top, at the pinnacle of our passage, stands this imperative to us. Verse 14 reads, Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. (laughs) This is the second time when we get to verse 14 that Paul in this pass or in the book of 1 Corinthians calls the Corinthian church to flee something. He says, flee sexual immorality earlier. Now he's calling us to flee idolatry. Run away from it as if it's a threat to your life. Run away from it like the building is on fire to save your life. Get running and don't stop, he says. For us, as we move towards this portion of our text, there's really just one clear message for you today, one clear imperative for you today is, Flee idolatry. My kids have this amazing and sometimes nauseating uh, habit right now where after every time I give them an, an instruction, they ask me why. You know, don't touch the garbage can. Why, Daddy? Don't, don't eat that. Oh, why, Daddy? Uh, don't, hold my hand as we cross the street. Why, Daddy? Don't play with those matches. Why, Daddy? Well, <laughs> that's on me. In my moments where I'm not very patient, I just say, because I told you so. 
But when I am more patient, I realize they're learning what's dangerous in the world. They're having to pick up on what things are bad for them, that threaten them. We all know that if a bus is barreling towards us, we should jump out of the way. But there's other things in life that we don't necessarily realize are dangerous for us or are threatening towards us. Things we may not be able to see with our own eyes. And so here in our, our last couple of verses, verses 14 through 22, Paul gives us a final reason to flee idolatry. And it's a reason that you might not see with your own eyes, but it's true nonetheless. In these verses, we're told that idolatry, it's a problem with demonic proportions. As we look at verses 14 through 22, you can scan through verses 14, 15, and 16, and really the, the, the logic flows, or the, the form of his argument is that, is that he says, isn't it true that when we partake of the cup of the bread, or the cup and the bread of communion, we are kind of declaring our participation and union with Christ. And then he goes on to say, if this is true, then it is also true that food sacrificed to idols is participation with something other than God. Look at verse 19. This is where he says it clearly. He says, what, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. If you take a survey of all the scriptures that speak of idols and idolatry, the overwhelming majority of passages are going to speak about idols being man-made things. There's nothing behind them. They're weak. There's no actual, any real spiritual thing behind them. And yet, in this passage, Paul just gives us this quick reminder that yes, there's nothing behind them. There's no strength or power behind them, but there is a demonic dimension to idolatry. Satan can't force your hand into idolatry. Verse 13 tells us that. It says that we can't be tempted beyond our ability, but sadly, we are very, very good at making idols. John Calvin says that our, our hearts are idol factories. As soon as one idol fails us, we, we know how to go find another one. Instead of growing and having this appetite for, uh, for the true Lord, our tendency towards idolatry can shrivel our soul. This is the scheme of the enemy that instead of helping us to grow an appetite for what, that which is true and good and right, we begin to settle for things that are cheap and easy, like cheap and easy fast food. Eventually, it'll take, get the best of us. Rosaria Butterfield has written that idolatry, it's not just dangerous, it's delusional. She says that idols, they, they promise, but they never deliver. They promise to offer what we desire because, because we can touch them sometimes, because we can see them with our eyes, we're inclined to believe that their promises can be trusted. She says, who wouldn't want to uh, embrace the, the, uh, a lover that can be touched and felt rather than a God who can't be? But she writes that idols are cheap and they're easy. There's a plethora of them. They promise to fulfill our deepest longings without any true cost, without any real work. And yet she writes that in contrast to our idols, God's love, it's costly and it's bloody, and it's powerful. Satan would have you believe that what you desire, what you need most in life, can be obtained easily. Satan would have you believe that there is no real work that needs to be extended to, to really be satisfied. But the truth is that what we need is not easily obtained, and the idols that we make are weak. And yet, Christ, he paid 
the cost with his own blood to obtain our freedom, the life, the joy, the satisfaction, the peace that we so long for, that we're seeking after by pursuing idols. He is no weak God, but his blood is powerful to break the bonds of sin and sickness and Satan himself. Idolatry, it's a sickness that you may not realize you have. It's a sin that you may not realize is going to be judged, and it's one of Satan's greatest schemes to derail you. And yet, what we have before us is a God who pursues us, who comes after us, and, and is powerful to break those bonds in our life. So, brothers and sisters, I call you, flee idolatry. It's ironic that we spend so much of our energy pursuing idols, things that we think will satisfy us, money, energy, time. We sacrifice and we suffer to obtain them. And all the while that we are pursuing other things other than God, God is the one who has been pursuing us. That he is the one who has sacrificed. He is the one who has bled for us, who has called after us even when we rejected him. And so I ask you this morning, to which of your idols has ever bled for you? To which of your idols has ever come after you in pursuit? To which of your idols has power to break the bonds of, of sickness in your life? Let me tell you about a God who is powerful, whose love is costly and bloody, but powerful. King David says it the best in Psalm 86. He says, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Idolatry is destructive. It's as destructive as ever. But because of the work of Christ, idolatry is more defeatable than ever before. Someone can tell me later if the word defeatable is actually a word, but I, I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down, that idolatry can be put to death. Idolatry needs to be put to death. Christopher Wright, a professor, a writer, he talks about the hope that comes from knowing that our idols are just man-made things. He writes, if gods are mainly human constructs, then they are not only destructive, but they're also destructible. As destructive as anything else we make on earth, the gods too, the so-called gods, too are subject to decay and death. They are no more durable than the men or empires that make them. He goes on to ask this pointed question. He says, where are the gods of Assyria? Where are the gods of Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome? History, he says, is the graveyard of the gods. And so I ask you, where is the God of Israel? You can look for him in the grave, but you're not going to find him there. You can look for him in the halls of the museums, but he can't be contained there because death had no grip on him. Demons had no power over him. So if there is one God who is worthy, it's the God who has stood the test of time. The God who is deserving of our complete and utter allegiance and worship. I heard this great phrase this last week, that we are bound to repeat what we don't repair. So I think back this week as we have this portrait of Israel before us, this problem that they had with idolatry. If it's not something we're going to repair, we're bound to repeat. So I just want to finish today with a couple, three, very three simple things to do this week. First off, I want to call us all to the work of confession. If this idea of idolatry is new for you, then I, confession is this, this, this simple way of coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, I confess that I have made something else more central in my life than you. 
going back to that definition that Tim Keller uh, talks about, I invite you to think and ask yourself, spend some time asking yourself, what in my life, if I didn't have it, my life wouldn't feel worth living. Secondly, I want to I want to call you to, to flee idolatry. Simply get away from it. Whatever is tempting you, create space, whether that's mental space or physical space. Flee it. Run. And don't stop. Thirdly, I want to call you to just embed yourself in community, community of other believers. Prioritize the church in your life. It's here that, that your heart will be reminded of who the true God is, it's here amongst God's people that you will be called to worship not fake and flimsy idols, but the true and living God. So Holy Trinity Church, those of us gathered here this morning, I want to call you to flee idolatry and together as the people of God, let us flee to the, to the one whose name is above all names, the lion and the lamb, the beginning and the end, the one who has no rival. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come before you today because, Father, you are the one who is the author of our story. Father, you are the one who has worked great, miraculous things in our life, the one who has provided for us a way of salvation, the one who has been faithful. So, Father, today we come before you, and I pray that in this room you would, you would stir up within us a heart that knows and is the courage to acknowledge the things in which we have made more central than you in our life. Father, I pray for a new attitude this week to take seriously the threat of idolatry. But Father, I pray for each one this morning that is here today that you would expand our, our understanding of who you are, the great and living God, the one who has no rival, our great and loving King. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.